Hello everyone, welcome to episode 714 of Cold Wave Soundcheck. I'm Aaron Pollock. We are now one month away from the Cold Wave 7 Festival, which kicks off September 12th in New York City, heads to Chicago starting September 20th, and goes to Los Angeles September 26th. Head to coldwaves.net for the full lineup and get your tickets if you have not yet before they are gone. This week we're chatting with Jared Lush, performing Burnout at the Hydrogen Bar for its 25th anniversary at all three cities. This is ChemLab.
Burnout is 25 years old now. Tell me about what you remember about, you know, the creation of the album, what was going on at that time, the release of the album. The creation of it was a hodgepodge because we were, we were all over the city. Uh, Dylan was living in one apartment after another, kind of barely able to hold one spot down. He was always moving from one joint to another, and one place burned down. And when we were writing uh, Neurozone, he was in a this uh, little apartment that was basically just a motorcycle repair spot. But I don't know, it was just it was hilarious. These fifty-gallon drums of oil and machine parts hanging out in what would have been a living room had it been a regular place felt sort of like a gypsy existence in a way. Um, and that kind of affected the feel of it to a certain extent. Uh, a couple of songs that never actually got released that are now completely gone uh, were recorded. Uh, this weird, faceless, empty apartment that was just full of computer equipment. And we wrote a couple of things there that didn't really work. Uh, it was just right underneath the uh, uh, Brooklyn side of the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, it was uh, a strange way to write. I liked it. I liked it. It felt right. Then I was talking to, uh, after the Nails tour, Trent had taken a copy of uh, Ten Ton and given it to Paul Barker with a couple of the songs that we were working on. Um, and Trent had said that he thought that the stuff that we were doing was really cool and that Paul would be interesting for production. So Paul and I talked about that some. I hadn't really thought of it as an option. And he was interested, but then his schedule wasn't quite working out uh, where it would lock up with us. Not quite sure that I can recall through the folds and the haze how critter appeared as an option and it may have been paul who suggested him critter hadn't done any official credited production at that stage of the game i mean he'd worked on ministry records and revco records and a bunch of other wax track stuff but never gotten official production credit so i called up tracks and said hey you don't know me but uh, would you be interested in doing this? I know this isn't something that you've really officially done before. He thought the idea of producing the record was uh, kind of cool. It fell into place without a great deal of effort, which is honestly the way I think things, when you know they're right, they just kind of fit. Not that there isn't loads of effort that can go into stuff that is exactly right as well but it just seemed like synchronicity was at work yeah the gears all just fed together it was perfect because we all got to push the parameters of what we do in the studio and have it be driven by a guy who was doing the very same thing that we were pushing the parameters of what he does in the studio so it was this tremendous growth experience for all of us and yeah fell together perfectly
I want to talk a little bit about the cover art. I always felt it was so iconic, and I remember I had a poster for it on my wall. A guy named Dalton was the one who helped stitch it all together, though the actual core components came from uh, a DC artist, a phenomenally dark, twisted, sarcastic character from a dark, twisted, sarcastic, super splinter scene in DC, a guy named Phil Merkel. So he built this huge board that is the background of the cover uh, and the board is this physical board with all the parts, um, the fans, and all the cogs and bits built onto it. It stands four feet high by four feet wide. Uh, I have no idea where it is. Uh, I know that Phil held onto it for a while, but in the nomadic way that life takes you, uh, it may very well have disappeared. He also built the segment for the back and in the interior of the booklet, it's all close-up shots, detail shots from uh, the four by four board that was the background. Uh, the face in the center was taken from a photograph of a bum who died, fell, collapsed uh, face first in an alleyway. Uh, and wasn't found till a couple of days later by the cops. Uh, and rats had chewed a bunch of the flesh off of his face, which is why he looks the glorious way that he does. So from all those component parts, um, we took those and uh, went and worked with Dalton, who was doing, uh, this is, what, 92, uh and he was doing all of this computer manipulation of images. Ooh, and it was, uh, you know, super high end and had this uh, basically gray supercomputer that, you know, might have had, uh, I doubt that it even had a, a meg's worth of brain to it. But at the time that was my God, that was high end. And, and it was funny, just the stuff that he could do. Of course, now you do it all on your phone and you don't even think about it. But he, we talked about generally what we wanted to see. And I, I talked through a whole series of references, both visual and sonic, because that's a lot of how I work. And, uh, and he said, he stopped me at one point and he said, you know, you really don't know what you want to see until you see it because you don't know what can be done until I do it. <laughs> uh, put your money where your mouth is and show me what it is that I don't know that I want to know. Um, so he did and he blended and blurred and he and Dylan sat together and Dylan just laughing at everything that the, you know, this burgeoning bleeding edge tech could do. Uh, and the tech was pretty fresh at the time. So this burning, flaming face coming out of the faceless wall of technology became the cover. And uh, yeah, I've, I've always really loved it, though. Part of what is my favorite part is the uh, just the detail segments 
throughout the booklet itself so that you can look at these little regions of it uh, in close-up, which is what's always interested me. And there were a number of people who were really instrumental in helping stitch segments of it together to become what it is. There was a guy, Marcus, who we were doing some mastering with him and I had brought a copy of 10 ton with me and said, and so what I really want to do is to put the vinyl on and uh, just scrape across it um, and make these little suture segments that come from the first recording that then help stitch together the next one. So that there's a through line from one to the next. So he threw the record on a turntable and did some scratching and digging. And uh, I did one or two. The long dragging scrape uh, is one of mine, but it's also one of my favorites in a way because it's just, it, you can see the speakers pop and shudder as it, goes through its motions. It's glorious. It's wonderful. <laughs> when you perform this this summer, you're going to be with the uh, the Dead on TV guys, Vince, Dan, and Mike. Tell me about how their energy, you know, matches up perfectly with with what someone would want from a chem lab performance. <laughs> um, well, they're a bunch of fucking rock and roll freaks, and. That sings to me. That strikes uh, a muscular little chord in me. There's a certain symbiotic energy there, something sympathetic that makes sense to me. And we were loosely talking, Mike and Dan and I, about writing some new material about a year and a half ago. Um, But it never went any further than just writing back and forth. So when Jason finally waterboarded me into putting the old war wagon back into service, there was no question but that I wanted to uh, pull these guys into the uh, horror go-round and see if my perception of what it is that triggered me would make sense if it would sync up the way I'm sure it will and if it would kick out the jams the way I think that it will I don't know what it is but I feel it in my hips and that's really all I care about and I've always described chem lab as machine rock it's not just machine music it's not just quantized and slaves to the beat it's not just rock and roll it's not you know, decadent excess and chaos of the guitar falling down some dark well. It's both of those things, and they have to they have to work together. They have to fight and fuck. And it seems to me like they are the perfect next chapter. Uh, smart, articulate, yet all of that goes out to the window when you hit the first chord. Uh, they understand on an innate level technology because they've grown up with it. They're much younger than I am. Of course, fucking everybody is much younger than I am. 
Um, and so they absorb a lot of that stuff in a non-linear way, in a non-narrative way, in a um, what is now a much more traditional way. And it is absorption as opposed to uh, reading the manual. That makes for the most interesting kind of robot that then makes rock music and creates that great counterpoint between the chaos and the precision. And, uh, and I think they're the quintessence of it. They are the latest and most interesting iteration of it. And hopefully they will make me um, interesting. <laughs> um, so it's easy for me to just jump off the PA stack and shake a tail feather and make it look like I'm something interesting and keyed in and up to date and wise and all those great things when in fact I'm kind of just a, a conductor, a conduit, a flow through as I used to say about Dylan, uh, if I'm the message, he's the thing that you learn. He was very much the collision of uh, art and technology and uh, man and machine. And I think these guys are even more so. I think I got this one wired pretty tight. And it's going to throw a Molotov and fuck people up. <laughs>
On this episode, you heard Suicide Jag, Rivethead, and Summer of Hate. ChemLab can be found on Facebook. Our opening music is Madmaker by Accumination. Our closing music is Messiah by Splinter Group. Subscribe to our show through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. Join us next week as we chat with Robert Caterwall and Jesse Degian Wage from Wirespun. Our closing segment each week is dedicated to the inspiration for Gold Waves, Fall in Chicago musician, and soundman Jamie Duffy. Here's Jared again sharing his memories of Jamie. I spent a lot of time on uh, the last long segments of time that we spent together on the pig face tours, uh, sitting up in the front lounge as we were rumbling and bucketing towards whatever the next destination is going to be. The two of us just sitting there talking pretty much about him and trying desperately to convince him that he wasn't hopeless, that he wasn't a waste of space, that he wasn't just a dead or dying signal, that he had fantastic capacity to do really anything he set his mind to. He was profoundly talented, meant that he wasn't a waste of space. And it used to kill me that we'd go through this stuff for hours at a time and then wind up again at that same spot as if we hadn't hadn't covered any of the same terrain again before five in the morning we'd be rumbling and bucketing to the next destination and and he'd be right back at the same spot again and for all of the is jamie there was this thing inside of him that tore him down over and over and over and over again and it just frustrated me so much and uh as I'm sure it did with people who were far closer to him than I was. You know, I saw him in one very prescribed context, which is the music. I don't know. I Sometimes there was so much to say about him, I don't know what to say at all. <laughs>